Today's episode is brought to you by Stockable. Stockable is a curated wholesale marketplace for handcrafted goods built by makers like you, not by Silicon Valley. They've got convenient features like risk-free net 60 buyer terms without the hefty commissions, and orders are always paid within three days, so you don't have to worry about cash flow. Learn more at stockable.com slash craft industry alliance. Apply to sell today and get your first month for free. Thank you so much, Stockable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 167 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about fabric design and illustration with my guest, Heather Ross. Author and artist, Heather Ross has won fame exploring themes of resourceful and creative living, the natural world, and handmade. Best known for her collectible fabric designs and books that appeal to the handmade and craft markets, she also hosts a wildly popular series of craft retreats held across the country. Heather's critically acclaimed memoir, How to Catch a Frog, chronicles her childhood spent in a remote corner of Vermont in a wilderness setting that remains a major influence on her creative work. She's also a celebrated illustrator of numerous children's books, including the best-selling Crafty Chloe series, winner of Kirkus Star. Heather Ross was a regular guest on the Martha Stewart Show and one of the most viewed artists featured on the how-to video channel Creative Bug. She regularly speaks on a wide range of topics that include creative living, the modern craft movement, and handmade. Heather Ross, welcome. Hi, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I wanted to just start by checking in with you to ask how you are doing. We are um, still in this sort of stay-at-home order that we've been, at least here in Massachusetts, um, living with for uh, going on five weeks here. And um, I wanted to, to know how you are doing. I know you're in the Catskills um, with your family. I am. I, I feel very lucky to be here. It feels really peaceful. And it, oh, this is the kind of place where we're pretty out there up here. And it's always the kind of place where you sort of forget about what's going on in the world, which is pretty impossible right now. We've been here for a month. Um, I was in, I was very sick. Unfortunately, I was one of the many, many, many people who, uh, who had coronavirus. Uh, but I'm now officially a have, have recovered, which is great. I'm, I'm about a month in and I've just started to feel like myself again, which is really, really wonderful. Uh, my family's fine. Everybody else got a little bit sick, but nobody got quite as sick as me. So everyone had to figure things out for a little while. When I emerged from from my isolation, I didn't even recognize my house. It was unbelievable. My living room had become like a big Lego land kind of. 
I didn't recognize anything in the kitchen. It's bizarre. I mean, all of it, right? It's like this giant pause button that we've all hit on our lives. I was saying to my friend Liz, it's like, and it makes you like look at your life and it makes you consider all of the things about the way that you live because suddenly you're not doing any of those things. And it sort of reminds me of that when you hit the pause button, when you're watching Netflix and you see your reflection in the black screen and it's this kind of jarring moment of like, oh God, that, that was my life. And now it's suddenly not, it's so bizarre and I don't know how long it'll be like this and how it will feel. But we're kind of muddling through at this point because what we're managing the online schooling and we're, you know, trying to figure out, we're now realizing New York City schools aren't going back. So we're here in the Catskills probably till Labor Day. We've lent our house out to medical in the city to medical workers. And we're staying up here for the for the foreseeable. And now we sort of have to figure out, oh, okay, we need a routine. Like this is our life now. We can't just, um, you know, lie in bed eating potato chips with this attitude of like, oh, it's quarantine. All rules are off. (laughs) Now we're trying to rein it in a little bit. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, I'm really glad that you are recovered. And I can hear in your voice that your energy is back. And I'm so glad. So thank you. Yeah. And it sounds like you have a good place to be with your family. So that's heartening to hear. And um So I want to talk about a lot of things with you. And first, though, I I would love to just very quickly, if you will indulge us just to trace your career for people who are a little bit less familiar with kind of the the journey that you've been on um, business wise um, that's brought you to where you are. I think most people know that you're a fabric designer with Wyndham and you illustrate books. Um, but maybe they don't necessarily know kind of where you were in the late 1990s um, with your business. So if you can kind of take us back to the monkey monkey days um, and how you came to start that business, uh, that would be a great beginning. Sure. Oh my gosh, so much of that is getting very blurry in my mind these days. But let's see. So I was living in Humboldt County in Northern California. And I had spent up until that point, I'd spent most of my life in Vermont, a little bit of time in Mexico. And I was living in Northern California. I'd been working as a wilderness guide. My really my only real skills at the time were were outdoor living, um, which I loved. And I loved that job. But I had always wanted to do something creative. My mom was an artist. So I grew up in a house that was like full of, you know, craziness and arts and and um, lots and lots of art supplies, lots and lots of odd, odds and ends from all over the world and, um, and not a lot of other stuff to do. We were, we lived in, I grew up in a really remote situation. So we weren't a lot of other kids around. I had a twin sister and in the summertime we had cousins around, but for the most part we were pretty isolated. So there was a lot of sort of resourcefulness that had to come into play. We had a lot of animals and a lot of land, but not a lot of toys or books or so we really we made what we needed sort of made very very crafty from a very 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 early age my sister and I both and so that was always a very core to who I was and what I was but my interests in my 20s were much more much had much more to do with wilderness and backpacking and mountaineering and and I loved and horseback riding I did a lot of 
a lot of work with horses and all of that was super fun, but I was getting kind of burnt out on sleeping on the ground a hundred nights out of the year and always being away on trips and sort of, you know, spending, I wanted to be a little more part of society. I think, I think I was kind of, I was pretty social. So it was getting a little old and I was, but I was living in a pretty, a pretty isolating situation. I was living in this like one room, a cabin, although it was missing like a whole wall. So it wasn't really a cabin in the, in the hills outside of Arcata, California with my boyfriend and it was funky. We had like a little bit of solar. Um, we had a uh, we had a big bear problem. This, we had this bear that would like come into our cabin while we were sleeping, and like rip open our sun frost, our solar refrigerator. <laughs> it was cra- It was a very it was a very disorganized <laughs> life. Um, and I remember thinking like I can't. I just can't spend my whole day trying to keep the fire going and the bear away. And I just need something else. I need like something going on in my life. And so I talked to my dad and he was, um, my dad's been in tech since like, he's like the old guy in tech. He like wrote all of, or some of the early Apple manuals. And he said, listen, I really respect the way you're living. But at the end of the day, when you choose that lifestyle, it's just for women, it's like manual labor. So I really, I want you to find like a little studio space or like a little office in town. And I want you to let me send you a computer because the whole world is moving towards uh, the internet and email. And I remember telling him like, oh, that's just a fad. Like email is not going to stick. And I couldn't even imagine what purpose the internet could serve. Like that was so confusing to me. I remember the first time going online and and finding some random person who was able to um, to spin wool for me and thinking, oh, okay, that's a miracle. But it was literally like looking at a phone book online. It wasn't, you know, there was nothing. It was a substance yet. It was very early days. So you sent me in Mac um, FX or F. Oh my gosh, was it FX or F2? It was one of these sort of old, it was an older machine by then, but it had been kind of an early graphics computer. And I rented a garage for, for like $100 a month from my friend. And I moved into this little garage. It wasn't heated, It was, but it was in Humboldt County. I mean, it got cold, but it didn't get like super cold. It wasn't like Vermont cold. And so I set up this little computer and I started learning Photoshop. That was what, that was his, he got me a little Wacom, one of the old gray digitizers. And, and I'd always been really into sewing and my mom had, had always had all of these crazy old fabrics around. I always loved printed fabrics and textiles. I was really obsessed with them. So I started teaching myself how to design fabrics. And I knew that if I used Photoshop, then I could get those designs printed onto fabric. I'd, somebody had had taught me a little bit about what that process was like and how Photoshop was used and channels and this really specific type of using Photoshop that is sort of the same process that you use for screen printing a T-shirt where you're like each color is sort of a solid, solid kind of like layers, but a little different. So I spent a ton of time I worked on. I developed like six fabric prints and I sent those images. I sent those uh, files to a place in San Francisco, a really lovely woman, a company called Zoo Inc. She printed a couple hundred yards for me total. And she nailed the color. Like she just, she got this perfect robin's egg blue and this perfect bright sunny orange that wasn't muddy at all. And this apple green. And I remember having this phone conversation with her because I couldn't, I couldn't get those colors to print. I could kind of get them with paint. 
But I remember in the end, we had this amazing conversation where I said, you know, the color of like a clementine. And she said, yes, yes, I know, I know. And then the color of a Granny Smith apple. She's like, yes, yes. And so we really, it was, it was like almost more, she was trying to achieve a feeling and a brightness that I couldn't really describe to her any other way, you know, because the technology just wasn't there. She made this beautiful fabric for me. And then I, um, I sewed it up into dresses and really simple, like sundresses. And I had her printed on what felt like old sheets because that was, I'd grown up with all of these old, beautiful, uh, bedding, you know, big bed sheets. And my mom had all these great cotton dresses. And so it was sort of that was what was inspiring the fabric. And I just wanted to make these really simple little sundresses that were based on this little French sundress that my mother had, had given me when I was a kid. And, and, um, just, you know, really basic idea. And we made up a bunch of dresses. I think I had someone help me with the sewing. I think my friend Chris helped me with the sewing. And we put together a couple samples and we went to Kinko's and printed up a bunch of order forms and I took the title of my car to a local lender and I said, um, I want to, here's the title of my car. I want to borrow enough money to go to this trade show in New York. And they said, okay. And at the time there were a number of pretty successful outdoor apparel companies in town. So they understood the model, I think pretty well. It was an interesting community, a lot of light manufacturing, a lot of support for small businesses yeah, like that. Yeah, being and, in California, also, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Northern California. I mean, this is still in Humboldt County and Arcata. But also it was still a moment when domestic manufacturing and, and California specifically, you were able to get things made there. Yeah. So it was sort of within, even though it was far, L.A. was far away from us, there was still this kind of statewide understanding that this was a this was something that could be made in state. You know, this was something that could be essentially locally made. So, so we bought plane tickets, we went to New York with our little sundresses and our photographs, and we just killed it. It was when the New York International Kids Fashion Show was still, and we didn't, we just knew it existed. Like we had gone and walked it once, but I didn't really fully understand the way that any of it worked. And we just kind of threw ourselves into it and we rented a corner booth because that felt like flashier. (laughs) And we, it was me and a girlfriend and we just took tons of orders, totally, totally pretending we knew what we were doing, which we didn't. And it was all on paper, right? So you had this like stack of, of orders and we were blown away. Like we could not believe how successful it had, it felt and how, and then we went out like late night to celebrate and we came very close to leaving that stack of orders in the trunk of the cab. Ah! (laughs) It was like this last minute when you're like, (laughs) I was running down the street, like pounding on the back of the car. If there hadn't been such terrible traffic, we never would have seen those orders again. And then we took the orders back to California. We went back back to the local lender. We said, okay, now we need to make this. And that was still a time when manufacturing in California was pre-Enron crash. So it was still a time in California where you could do that where and, and where apparel inventory had a value, which it doesn't now, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, we committed to using a certain amount of local resources and we committed to a ridiculously high interest rate and we were in business. And we did that cyclically for seven years. And it was so hard. I mean, I think by the end of it, Abby, I think I would spend, if I was lucky, three or four weeks 
out of the year actually designing fabric and and really simple basic kids clothes and the rest of my time went to just I was on the phone I was juggling and I had no experience I had no relevant experience I mean I knew I was really good at making you know designing the fabric making the sundress taking the picture of the sundress putting the file into photoshop um <laughs> uh, you know, making a postcard out of it, like making it, I was really good at like the branding part of it, but the business part of it, oh my God, I hated it. And I, I hated having to constantly stay in this, like, you know, I was the cheerleader. I was the one that was always trying to convince everybody that everything was going to be great. And all of my friends and my family, everybody helped me and everybody invested in me. And so then there was this like, tremendous amount of responsibility that I carried with me all the time that just kind of left me in this kind of almost paralyzed state. It was hard. It was so, so, so hard. And then everything fell apart in California and the, um, all the wash houses and the cut houses and, and all of these companies that we really depended on, they all uh, almost overnight went out of business. And at about the same time, a company uh, that, that manufactured out of Minneapolis, they manufactured overseas, but they're out of Minneapolis, Creative Apparel. They said, look, you know, we, we make pajamas. We think your prints would be great for pajamas. We'd like to buy the brand and all of the artwork. And we saw that, I saw that as an opportunity to sort of recoup and regroup and recover and move on and do whatever I was going to do next. Um, it became really complicated, though, because just at that moment, suddenly everyone was buying fabrics and making them into baby blankets and, and starting their own websites and Etsy shops and selling things online. So it became a seven-year <laughs> legal battle of whether or not I could actually design fabric because I'd sold this brand and all of this artwork and now I was competing with it because one of the only things I really knew how to do was design fabric and I started focusing on that and I started doing collections for Free Spirit. And so and the conflict, the, was the conflict that you wanted to use the same designs or was the conflict no. just that you wanted to design at all? Well, it became a very muddy legal conversation because um, when I had just, when I decided to sell Monkey Monkey and leave California, uh, that part of California, I thought I'm going to design fabric for quilters and for people who are making things for themselves. Right, DIY. That's a yeah. separate industry, sure. right? Yes. Um, and then you're going to take this artwork that I sold you, which was a mistake on my part and the brand and you're going to make monkey you're going to keep going with monkey monkey and you know make it into pajamas and that's great and I'm going to go in this totally other direction because at the time those barriers still existed and then suddenly I mean almost overnight those barriers evaporated because the internet had become so image friendly and Etsy was being created and things were changing that in enabling people, almost anyone to start like a baby blanket business or a bloomer business. And so suddenly the quilt market and free spirit was a huge part of this was changing because people wanted yards and yards and yards of fabric to sew their own goods in fun prints, ideally, and sell those goods direct to consumer online. So it was kind of the very beginning of the direct to consumer. It was like this first wave of direct to consumer business modeling. 
And the people that I sold Monkey Monkey to suddenly started seeing all these other things out in the marketplace made up in my fabric prints. And they felt that suddenly what they had purchased was not as valuable because it wasn't the only thing that looked like that in the marketplace. So we went through a very complicated, very long, and none of us and had anticipated it. No one was trying to trick anyone. It just wasn't like, and, and on a lot of levels, we were in agreement about how tricky the situation was. So what happened after, even though I was really loving working with Free Spirit and Donna Wilder, so wonderful, yeah. and, you know, met a lot of people who are still close friends of mine in those days, um, Anna Maria and Denise Schmidt and Melanie Salek and Joelle Hoverson. It was an incredible opportunity to connect with this community of people that were all um, in New York and around New York and building amazing things. And and um, I wrote Weekend Sewing. It was and I started my blog and it was so fun. At the same time, I realized I had to stop because um, the company that owned Monkey Monkey was really upset. So, so I walked away from designing fabric for a little while, which was so hard because it's always been the thing that I, you know, that I love the most. And at around the same time I got married and, and had a baby and then started doing a uh, book illustration. I, st- I sort of rebooted as a kid's book illustrator and author thinking that I wouldn't be able to get back into fabric design. So what allowed you to come back? I mean, did they just decide to let it go? Or did you have to shift the kind of imagery you were creating or change uh, fabric companies? Or what allowed you to then re-enter this market? Uh, The main thing was that I had signed a very lengthy non-compete for it was a seven year non-compete. And it expired. It expired. And that was what allowed me. And then I happened to be, I was at Pearl Soho. I feel like it was maybe Lada. Lada's a good friend of mine also. And, and how we have sort of a bizarrely parallel kind of. <laughs> but Lada, I think, had a, a this fabric. This is Lada Young's daughter, yeah. Lada Young's daughter. She had done a, I think she was doing a fabric launch with, um, she's launching one of her first lines with Wyndham. And I went to the party at Pearl and I remember I had my baby on my, like I was where I was still at a point where I could wear my child on my chest. And I met um, Mickey and Lori and Alex and probably Laura. And I loved them. This is the Wyndham, the group of people that run Wyndham. And we had this really great connection. Really liked them. I really liked how they, how they, I felt like they understood both sides of the the industry. You know, they really understood the traditionalists. They really understood the, and really honored them all. I don't ever sort of equally, but also just how it was clear to me that they were just really kind of the thing about their jobs that they loved was, you know, trying new things and, and having this like very nimble ability to kind of pivot and, and, I, Mickey and I was the beginning of a really great thing because, and Mickey and I have, you know, worked together now for, oh gosh, Mickey's the head, Mickey Kruger is the head of the gnome. And he's, it's a, he's part of like a long multi-generational family, fabric family, Shimada family. But he, um, he and I can have these like, you know, totally, we can have this ideas that we're at the, in the moment, we're like, oh my God, this is the best idea. I can't wait to do this. Okay, you do this and I'll do this. So we're super excited, which I don't, I haven't really had a lot of that in my career. You know, these like partnerships where we have this shared goal and this, 
excitement about something. And we both really love like the little bit of risk involved in the entrepreneurial thing. But we also just love trying new things. And he is always, you know, has always been so open to giving things a shot and really good at mitigating risk and not like, you know, creating a lot of chaos, but also really supportive of who I want to be in this industry and where my niche lies. And, and then I know at the same time, he's still, he's juggling a lot of other interests and a lot of other priorities, but he's, you know, always able to make me and my work feel like, you know, they're important to him. And that's been, that business relationship has been a really wonderful thing. I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, Stockable, and Stockable's founder, Adrian Stone. Hi, I'm Adrian Stone, and my business is Stockable. And can you tell us a little bit about Stockable and what it's all about? Sure. Stockable is a wholesale marketplace, and we are exclusively for handcrafted goods. Everybody that sells on our platform is a maker. And um, one of the biggest differences between our platform and others is that we are entirely maker supported. Can you talk a little bit about your own background and um, how you kind of got into creating a wholesale maker platform? (laughs) Yeah. So I actually was a maker myself. I had a jewelry line. And when I saw that there were some issues coming up with Etsy Wholesale, I realized they were going to be closing it and decided to build something that uh, the community could come use. Cool. That's great. So do you have um, a coupon code that you could offer to our listeners? We sure do. We um, we actually don't have a code, but we do have a link that you can use. Um, so it would be stockable.com forward slash craft industry alliance um, for a special discount on membership. That's great. And how do you spell stockable so people can go check it out? <laughs> Great question. It's S-T-O-C-K-A-B-L. There's no E at the end. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Okay, great. So go check that out. And thank you so much, Adrian. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Stockable. And now back to my conversation with Heather. Yeah, I just wanted to speak to Mickey Kruger's generosity. He's been on this show in the past. People can go back and listen to that episode. And I also just want to say, like, in the, you know, I've had articles specifically, I can think of one uh, last summer when we were talking about the trade tariffs with China. And I literally was like, I have to write this article about trade tariffs. I have no idea really about international trade. This is not my area of expertise, but clearly this is going to impact the crafts industry. I need to learn about this and how it's going to affect fabric. And I called him. He was like, call me. And I called him and he he, for 45 minutes, he just explained it to me. And I was like, thank you so much. Like I, I did not understand this and now I totally understand it. And I just am so appreciative. So he's just somebody who does things like that. And it's just, it's really generous. So I just wanted to say incredibly generous. He really wants to see other people succeed. And that stands for his designers and his quilt shops and, and all of the, I mean, he's, he was, I think raised with that, like, you know, business community mindset that a lot of people just don't have now. And also a really understanding, a really strong understanding of supply chains and just the industry. And just, he, I mean, we, when we start something new, he's always like, Oh, I know a guy, I know someone who can help us with this. I know someone. And that's so valuable because when you're working the way that I've always worked, which is kind of in this little bit of a silo, you know, it's sort of, 
you don't, I'm, my network is, is other artists essentially, you know, even though my roots were for a brief time in manufacturing, that was domestic manufacturing that all imploded. You know, I don't have this under, I don't have a vast understanding of the way that international or, you know, global manufacturing works and he does, but then he also knows the best guy in New Jersey to make your bias tape for you, you know? And when you do know those things, yeah, when you do know those things, then a world of possibility opens up because you may think something's impossible. And then when you're connected with or partnered with somebody who understands and has these other um, connections, then you're like, oh, wait, it's not impossible. Actually, it's totally possible if you know the right people. Yeah, anything. But that's kind of that's the attitude of people that are the best people to do business with is like Mickey and Lori, who are like anything's possible. Whatever we want to do is possible, which I love. I love that about them. And And they're also just very grounded, good people who are always going to put people first and are very philanthropic, not only with their, you know, resources, but with their time, they're volunteer, they volunteer, they, they're just lovely, lovely people. And I, I love, I love working with them. So so let's talk a little bit about that relationship, um, and how it's changed over time. So you've done a lot of collections with Wyndham. And so, um, you know, just talk about sort of how you have, um, manage that, manage those collections, how you've gone about um, re-releasing collections that have really basically left the market and become really collectible and hard to find. Yeah. And so their resale value has gone, you know, skyrocketed and, you know, people have sold them, resold them on eBay for really high prices. And then it's been really hard to find them. And so you've re-released those collections um, chosen to do that and, and some, sometimes on your own. And anyway, so just talk a little bit about how you've managed your fabric collections over the years. And then we'll talk about what's coming new. Yeah, sure. So, um, so far, and this could change, but so far the, the fabric collections that I've been that I've really prioritized in terms of reprinting are the collections that were really released on a very limited basis initially, right? So when I was, I did, I worked with Coca briefly. So I worked with Free Spirit and then I worked with Coca briefly. And um, the work that I did for Coca was all printed on an, a gray uh, decor weight linen. It had never been on quilting cottons. So it was a really obvious thing for me because for years people had said, you know, oh, we, we want those prints, at, but we're not going to pay $40 a yard. And we're, we don't want them on gray linen. We want to quilt with them. And we had done them on double gauze, but Coca didn't want to print my stuff on double gauze anymore. And I'm, I'm not even sure why, but they really wanted it on the decor weight. And so I would work in these like incredibly saturated bright colors and give my art to Japan to Coca knowing full well that all those colors would get really muted and so I just amped them up as much as I could which was a real driver in terms of developing my palette because I just never stopped working with those really bright colors (laughs) so then when we when when um I started working with Wyndham, I was really only able because I was doing a lot of book illustration and I was writing and I was also raising my daughter B and I wanted to be, you know, present for that. And so I was really only able to give them a new collection every 18 months, every two years. And, and I didn't want to stop by, you know, my process is, is kind of labor intensive. It's everything is sketched and then I'm drawing everything by hand and building the repeats. And it's, it's a pretty laborious process one that I love, but I, you know, I didn't, I couldn't give them 
two collections a year and that my fabrics were selling well. And Mickey said, you know, we can, the market will, will absorb more. Like what else can we give them? People want more. And we said, well, we have these collections that were printed on this gray linen, you know, that would look totally different on quilting cotton and people would love them. And it'll be a really different, it's a different fabric, it's a different weight. And then we also had the far, far away that had been done on, on uh, my, my first far, far away collection, which had been done on the double gauze. So we did all of those one at a time on, um, on quilting cotton and we staggered them. So I would do a new collection and then we would do a reprint and then, and that was going well and it was great. And I, I think Mickey and I feel similarly in the sense that like, it's exciting to see your older stuff get really, really valuable online. Like that feels kind of good, even though it doesn't impact us. Like it feels good. You know, you're like, oh, it's great. But you know that a lot of the reason that those prices are high is just because there's not much of it out there. And if there was more of it out there, the prices would be lower. And I think Mickey and I have an agreement where price is concerned. You know, we kind of have two rules where inventory is like, let's sell out of it so we don't have to discount it. And also, let's make it so that everyone can afford it, you know. And it, to see fabric going for, you know, $100 a yard, you're like, oh, it's cool. But then you're like, Mm, but is it yeah it's (laughs) just it's just kind of an ego it's like an ego stroke but beyond that what yeah but beyond that you know like you I do feel like it's more fun to have everybody able to use it I was really funny I was when I was working on weekend sewing I went Melanie Fallick who's a dear friend and we still do work together and she was she lives in this lovely little town in Beacon upstate New York on the Hudson River and I would go up and spend, you know, stretches of days with her and we work on sewing and she wasn't, she's never been a huge fan of, um, of the like brightly colored kid novelty stuff. You know, we have a lot, we have a similar aesthetic in some ways, but she's always kind of steering me towards something a little more, you know, it was a little more mature, a little more sophisticated, which I like. And, and it's been a, she's been a really good impact on my work in that way. Um, and, and she loves like the storytelling part of it, which is really where I'm at, but she's really good at helping me find ways to like tell the story without it feeling overly novelty and kind of clownish. And one of the fabrics that I brought with me to her house on one of those early trips was it's like five yards of the Volkswagen buses on blue and on aqua. And when I was leaving her house, she's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't really want to use this in the book, but it's cute. And I said, well, I'm living in, I was living in this really small apartment in New York city at the time. And I said, well, I don't really have room for it. Will you find a use for it? She said, oh, I'm sure I will. So I left her this stack of fabric <laughs> and, um, thinking also that maybe I would going back. And anyway, it just ended up in her closet. So like six years later, five years later, we got this email. I got this email from someone and they were desperate for some of this fabric because they had grown up doing these Volkswagen bus trips around the country with their dad. And then their dad had just died and they were making a quilt and it was this really beautiful story. And they were really hoping that I had even like, just like a scrap. And I remember that I hadn't had any for years, but I said, you know, I think Melanie Fallick has some of that fabric. And so I connected them on email 
and Melanie dug it out and Melanie called me. She said, I don't know what to do. Should I, should I charge her for it? Or should I just give it to her? And I said, do whatever feels right. And I think she just gave it to her. But at the time on eBay, it would have been like $700 worth of fabric. Oh my gosh. It was great. That's <laughs> I was able, when her husband was unemployed for a while, she was paying her mortgage with my fat. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> so you, I know, I love that. I love that it, it's special, but I also know that realistically, part of the reason it's so expensive is just because there isn't that much out there. And it's a it's kind of a supply and demand thing. And I think it's more fun to make a bunch more and sell it and sell out of it again. And I just don't see I don't I don't love the, the sort of the preciousness about it. You know, I feel and I don't love the like I don't know. I, I hate having fabric in my stash that I'm afraid to use because I can't get it again. I don't know. It's yeah. fun. It's like, I don't know. I think it's more fun to make stuff, I guess. Right. Okay. Yeah. And you were doing these pre-sales. Is that right? On your website? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So that's kind of a different, that, so, um, the model, sort of the traditional model of the licensing relationship, which is what fabric has always been, right? Uh, it, it doesn't, there's not a lot of compensation for designers, right? Right. There's and I think people very, sometimes are a little bit surprised to hear that, but, but maybe by now yeah. people are a little bit more used to, to hearing it. I think it's a little more common knowledge, but I remember it being a real frustration on from my end because when I went into it, and I think a lot of people have, have dealt with this, like when I went into it, um, you know, you don't, you can't really do the math. You can't really do the forecasting because you don't know how much fabric is going to sell, right? So when, when I, around the time that I got into business, I got into the, the, the licensed fabric design business, um, the standard starting royalty, and this has changed, was 3% of wholesale. So, but what, and you could, you could do the math, but you had no understanding as a designer of how much fabric you could expect to sell. And no one could tell you because it really just depended on the reaction. And it also depended on how hard you were willing to work to promote it and what kind of platform you had. And at the time it was Facebook and blogs. That was how you promoted your fabric. And, um, so I started a blog and I wrote weekend sewing and I designed fabric. And I thought between the three of those things, I should be able to generate a pretty healthy income, right? If I have this fabric line that's doing well and I have, (laughs) um, so just for context, a really successful collection, like if you think of like the top, you know, four or five quilting fabric designers that you know um, just off the top of your head like a strong collection is probably going to be about 60,000 yards of fabric for that whole collection right and they'll probably print a little extra and they'll probably end up putting some on clearance I don't I, I work really hard to avoid that but in a lot of cases it's unavoidable um, and when something goes on clearance you're typically not paid a royalty on it. These obviously these are all, you know, estimates. all of these things are negotiable and they're yeah. estimates, but 3% of wholesale. So if you, you can do the math, you know, you know, more or less, you can guess that the wholesale price of fabric is about a third of the price that you're seeing the full price that you're seeing in retail shops. And you can, you can put, you know, you can do the math three pennies on the dollar. That's what would go into 
a designer's hand. And it is not a surprise to me (laughs) that the people who are willing to work for that amount of money are largely women because men don't work for free, but for some reason it's okay. And this is so aggravating to me. I mean, I just, I find this is the kind of thing that just can ruin my whole day. If I think about it for too long, for whatever reason, generations of women have been convinced that this is an acceptable compensation for their work and that what they can expect to gain in the, just the satisfaction of knowing that their artwork is on fabric should be enough. And I can't tell you how many times I have gone to the mats with manufacturers and sales reps and and sales executives about how flawed this model is and how in every other industry, whether it's entertainment or business or whatever it is, these gender equality conversations have been happening now for 20 years and things are starting to level out. But in our industry, in fabric design, for whatever reason, it is still acceptable and normal in the eyes of many people for these designers, the bulk of whom are women, to be paid almost nothing for something that very few people know how to do. And that, to me, is the thing that needs to end. That, in my mind, in, on all of the disruption that we're facing right now with the direct-to-consumer models sort of overtaking even online sales, with all of these changes, dramatic changes, that I think we can expect to have happen in this industry in the coming years, I think that's something that we all need to pay a lot of attention to. So you've been making some changes yourself for yourself and you're not the only one to be clear I mean there there are other designers out there who are working in their own way for their own career to make this change happen and people are sort of hacking away at it in different in in different with different strategies um but yeah and and to different levels of success but I would love to hear (laughs) Um, what you're doing, because I think you've got some things um, rolling that are really interesting. Yeah, I know. I wish I could talk like at a nauseum at length about everything I'm doing, but we're still, and given especially what's happened during the last few weeks, it's still really forming. So I don't want to make a lot of promises that I can't keep or give away, give away secrets from, that are, that belong to other people. But Um, I can say this, and let me just clarify that to your question about pre-sales, when my conversations with Wyndham became, you know, so constant, my conversations about compensation and about feeling like the model just wasn't working for me financially, and so much was being, so much was expected of me, you know, because now these, um, 
that model, that 3% model, that was based on the fabric manufacturer taking all the responsibility to promote and market a collection. But now that work is, a lot of that work is on the designer. It's whether you have an Instagram following and whether you have a, you know, an ability to make beautiful things out of the fabrics and promote those beautiful things and, and convince the stores. I mean, you, you're doing a lot of that work. The percentage of work that goes into my fab, managing my fabric collections is not at all limited to just design. You're right. doing a and lot. So of now, work. right now the artist is a marketing partner and the, and that percentage, that three percentage has dropped for most people. Right. And for most people, they're most people, most entry level designers are making a fraction of that. It's now. more like and one. It's more like, yeah, it's more like one. And they're, but they're doing more than ever. And even in, in my situation, so I design the fabrics and then I make the samples then I photograph and lay out and publish the lookbook. I mean, we're talking about a tremendous amount of work and a tremendous amount of time away from my family and, and time away from other income generating things. And, but without those things, without doing those things, I, everyone suffers, the collection suffers, the stores. And I'm also, as we discussed earlier, you and I, I'm serving more than one market. I have to think about what the online stores need. I have to think about what the retail stores need. I have to think about what the traditional shops need. I have to think about what the sales reps need. I am managing all of that and I'm not necessarily being paid for any of that. That's just coming out of my day. So one of the things that Wyndham and I were able to decide, because it was, you know, to change the pricing on just my fabrics to accommodate a higher royalty. Like, how do you, you know, how do you even solve that? If I'm the one designer who's like, hey, this isn't fair. And not that I am the, the one designer, but I, I was fighting hard. And so what we came up with was, okay, so I'm going to be, I have this platform, I have this following. I have the ability to put together, to package my work in this really, you know, unique way. I'm going to start, I'm going to be a retailer. So for the last few years, I've been retailing my own fabrics. And because I don't have a warehouse and I don't have, you know, a consistent, and my online store is, is not full time. I'm going to do it on a pre-sale basis and I'm going to offer my customers something like a little special, a little studio design, something or other. And that's how I'm going to generate income as a fabric designer. So at first it, it worked pretty well, but what evolved every, and everything does in business is I was competing not only with my retail customers, but with myself <laughs> and, and I wasn't, there wasn't any real, there wasn't any real benefit in me selling these fabrics directly that came like I wasn't in a better position because I was the designer. Do you know what I mean? It was I was basically just another retailer of these fabrics. Finally, this fall, we just got to a place where we said, OK, this isn't working for anybody. Like This is just silly and I need to rethink this. And so what we've decided to do is um, I'm going to continue to retail fabrics and I'm going to sell them directly direct to the consumer, which is the way that um, the way that I was doing the pre-sales. But it's going to be a, a more fleshed out kind of thing. I, I think uh, now we're looking at, at 2021 as being when this is all happening. Um, and I'm going to offer a different type of fabric and a subtly different type of print. And what I'm hoping is that I can create a separate channel, a separate stream of business for myself that will not 
compete so directly with the retail stores, but that will offer my existing customer and maybe some new customers some new products that they'll use in in ways that they're not able to accomplish with the quilting cottons. Okay, so you're going to, just to be clear, so you're going to be creating a separate line that's going to be a direct-to-consumer line. Wyndham's going to print it for you. Correct. Right. Wyndham is Wyndham is a partner in every aspect of my business, but there we're it's very unclear at this moment what they can what they feel that they can do without um, without creating a um, I wouldn't necessarily conflict uh, say conflict of interest, but with the goal that I can't I can't say at this point exactly how the business will be modeled, but I can say that what we are trying to accomplish mutually is two separate business, two separate channels, two separate products that do not compete with, with one, one another, another. directly. Yeah. And that's really the goal. That's, that's been, that's the only way that we see um, it being possible to move forward in a way that, that makes as many people happy, <laughs> which is always the goal. Like you can't make everyone happy, but right. you can so make you, a lot of you will simultaneously con- happier. You'll continue to create new lines that are specific for the quilt shops, and yeah. those yeah. will be with Wyndham, with Wyndham mm-hmm. and those will be screen with print, screen printed overseas. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then yeah. the ones that will be direct to consumer will be digitally printed, smaller runs. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. I mean, I'm right now. As an artist, I'm really interested in what's happening in digital printing. I think that we domestically, I think it hasn't gained a lot of credibility because I think we're still seeing we're still seeing a lot of experimentation, um, and we're seeing a lot of different quality levels. You know, the difference between a an, and this is especially true in North America right now. The digital printing capabilities that are here are very different than the ones that are in Asia. Yeah. The machines that, that people, the companies, and a lot of quilt, a lot of quilting fabric companies are already printing fabric digitally, and they just, are. just they're not they're not saying it publicly, but that's what they're doing. And if you walk up to, I won't say who, but if you walk up to one of the largest fabric manufacturers at the quilt show and say, here's my portfolio. I really want to do a line. They'll say, awesome. Looks good. You've got 10,000 Instagram followers. We'll give you a collection, uh, 10 cents a yard. That's how much you'll make. And they're printing that digitally and they're showing it on paper and they're not putting a lot of energy into promoting it. They're depending on you and your 10,000 Instagram followers to promote it. And it's a little bit of a sham in my mind because it feels to me like the partnership, the value that they're supposed to be adding and helping you to build your brand and helping you, they're not really taking responsibility for that at that level. Whereas, you know, the screen printed fabrics, when they commit to you, they're committing to a huge investment. They're printing, you know, three to 5,000 yards of that, of each of those prints and they're invested. They're going to work their butts off to sell that, you know. And they're going to do what they can to get your name and your sales card on top of that very tall stack of fabrics that sales reps are showing that, you know, this is very saturated markets, a lot of designers. So really, you're, you're doing all the work. And you're not getting a lot of return. And then I would also say that, you know, because we've all watched those technologies develop over the last decade or so. Um, 
we've seen we've seen the good stuff and we've seen the stuff that maybe didn't didn't come out of the wash that well or maybe the fabric underneath it like the quality just wasn't there and even though the ink looks good it's not it's not our like amazing soft quilting cotton that we want and you can't get much past this consumer because and I'm I'm one of these consumers we are so sensitive not just to color and design and texture but to the feel of it. Yeah, because you know? we're, this is a premium product. Is, and so you're, look, you're after a premium consumer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah and for we sure. Know, yeah. We know the difference, you know. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, I, I, I think that one of the reasons that it's possible to sell a ton of Wyndham quilting fabric or, you know, Free Spirit, um, you know, when I was working with them, people knew what to expect in terms of the quality of the fabric. So to come into the market with like a brand new line right now, you you don't have that decades of credibility behind you. Right. Which brings and, us, I think that brings us to the situation that I want to talk about next, which is around um, what's happening right now, uh, um, meaning the COVID-19 crisis and people being quarantined in their homes or being on stay at home orders and, um, and, and sort of this, this coming right in March, um, right before spring market, right before the new fabric releases were about to, to launch, right? Um, and, and so, um, so it really, change the way this next cycle is taking place and um, sort of hurting the old way of of seeing those fabrics and favoring maybe the 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 those shops that were set up for for e-commerce so I wondered if you have thoughts to share about what is happening right now and maybe what the long-term ramifications might be for that system of sales reps, et cetera, that was in place. Yeah, that system, that the, the road rep system, it's, you know, I'm sure there are other industries that still, that still rely on that model, but it's, it's pretty traditional. You know, I don't like using the word outdated because obviously it's still working for not just a few retails, Shop, quilt shops. It's working for a lot. And there's there's a very traditional. There's a very core core customers in this industry that use that system. So I don't in any way want to imply that it is like in any way inferior. It is more labor intensive and time consuming, and it could be a lot of it replaced with very simple technologically driven processes that could make everyone's lives a lot easier. And it is complicated when you're selling in three different ways and having to create three different promotional packages and three different, but all of that aside, I mean, what I keep going back to, I keep remembering that when I started monkey monkey, you know, that was the model that we had. We had sales reps, we had, we had samples. I mean, it was really similar. People getting in their cars and driving to shops where the person that oh, this is like pre, you know, big online retailer. This is like Baby Gap was the biggest threat to my customers when I had Monkey Monkey when it was a kids' clothing store. So my reps would go in. It was very frequently like the owner of the shop um, was working behind the counter. It was little kids' clothing shops in every small town in America that you know had been around for decades. They placed an order based on what they saw, and that that was that was the way it worked. And even if you wanted, as as a 
me as a designer, as a manufacturer, even if I wanted to send photographs of my collection to someone, very few people could open a photo in email in 1999. We were still seven years away from smartphones. It was complicated. And when we were signing up a new customer, one of the things we would say was, do you have email? How often do you check your email? Can I send you images over email? I mean, and now it's really hard to imagine, but that's what it was like. And then 9-11 happened. And this trade show that we went to twice a year that we physically, I mean, physically wrote the bulk of our sales in these two four day periods, one in the fall, one in the spring, totally depended on it. It meant our whole year. It was basically what the quilt market was, you know, 10 years ago. And we depended on those. I mean, it was, that was so important. Everything, all of the stress and preparation and care, it was all about these trade shows. So the trade show was only three weeks or four weeks after September 11th. And we were convinced to go and we wanted to go because we didn't know how else to reach our customers. And we had a few that we could send images to, but not very many. And producing a print catalog was more expensive than going to a trade show, right? So I remember flying into New York City. This was like four weeks after September 11th. I was still living in California. And I remember looking down at lower Manhattan from the plane and everything below 14th Street was still dark except for these big stadium lights that they had over the the 9-11 site. And it was still this massive gaping smoking hole. And I thought there are not going to be any customers. I mean, I thought a lot of things, but one of the things I thought was whole we're not going to see anybody. We're not going to write any orders. And we didn't. It was a huge loss. And so we had to come home and in order to make payroll and to go back to the bank with, you know, with orders, we had to figure out how to reach our customers. And we would get on the phone with them and teach them how to open JPEGs. And the retail stores that figured it out stayed in business. And the ones that didn't were done. And many of them were ready to go. I mean, there had been pressures on them outside of that for a long time. Retail was changing really dramatically. And now it's changing again. You know, now, right now in this market, you know, sure, sales reps are working their butts off finding ways to reach their customers. But most people are going to learn about these collections on the Instagram accounts of the designers who did them. Like I just, I just saw Malibu on your Instagram. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I don't, and I think, you know, I was excited to go. I love Pittsburgh. It's one of my favorite cities. I love that place. I love everything about it. I was so looking forward to it. Annabelle Wrigley and I are doing, a, we're, we co-designed a, um, a line of solids because for years we've been talking about how we basically like all the same colors and use all the same colors, but we use them really differently. So we sat down and we designed a, um, a collection based, on our wacky palettes, like basically all the colors that we can never find that we really, really want. And, and it came out great. I mean, there are so many pinks in it. Like everyone that looked at it, it's like, I didn't know there were that many pinks, but there are. And, um, we were planning a really fun launch for that in Pittsburgh and we were close friends and our daughters are close friends. And we were really looking forward to spending that time together. I mean, there is so much value to that feel, that sense of community. I love spending, I love hanging out with the Wyndham folks and watching them work so, so, so hard. And, 
um, it's fun. You know, you don't get to, and I get, I love meeting my customers, but from a business perspective is quilt market relevant in terms of numbers and anymore? No, not at all. It hasn't been for a long time. You know, my feeling is that once we go through this cycle of, you know, road reps, not being able to go on the road and, you know, fabric companies not going to spring quilt market and everybody survives, you know, and uh, it, it, it becomes difficult to prove that you need that system anymore. You know, it just because I mean, it's fun, for sure. And and there's value to it, for sure. But, you know, then everybody starts ordering their fabric on the website, and more people are pushed into doing that people realize the need to have a really um, robust e commerce site, or they're not really going to make it through. And, you know, it, I mean, and, and there's a lot of loss there, for sure. I'm not saying there isn't. Um, yeah. But it, it, it does change. I, like, I think we're at a pivot point, an inflection point, and it, it does become hard for people to say, okay, it's spring, you know, 2021. Do we really need to go anymore? Yeah. Well, I'm looking at, you know, we, we're up here in the woods. My daughter's doing online schooling. The first couple of days were heartbreaking, you know, because this, her school in the city, they're like every other school is trying to figure it out and invent the process. And but human beings are so adaptable. We will find, we are survivors. We are thinkers. We're problem solvers. We're resourceful. We're going to figure out a way. And she has figured out a way. She is, has just, you know, become this like incredibly independent minded. She takes full ownership over it. It's so impressive. She, yesterday she was, we were on an Easter zoom with my husband's family and we she was the one that was showing us like how to do things on Zoom. And she and I could tell, I could hear like a little frustration in her voice, like, oh, why is it taking you people so long to figure this out? <laughs> and I loved it. You know, it was great. And it it feels like we're all finding new ways to accomplish everything that we want to do because that is such a part of the human spirit. You know, we are gonna figure it out. And and I re- my hope is that you know, these stores who are really attached and to and, and love this um, wonderful relationships that they have with these reps. And this like, you know, you know, these reps are it's commendable. They understand these customers so well because they see the towns they're in. They see who their customers are. They see what else is in their shop. They have an incredible ability to sell them fabric. But I'm not I'm not convinced that they need to keep doing everything the same way. I think all of that value can be translated into a new process. And I think that everyone can find a way, but I think clinging to like being determined to not let go of the way that we're doing things now. I think that's, that's a short sighted, it's a short sighted approach. Yeah. You know, we all have to, we all have to evolve. And there's this really, really beautiful. Um, do you listen to the New York times, the daily? I have listened to it. I don't listen to it yeah. every day, but I have listened to it. They've been doing on the weekends, they've been doing these sort of like hopeful pieces, like little stories that are really hopeful and pretty and beautiful and inspiring. And they played this beautiful interview two weeks ago with um, George Saunders, the author George Saunders. He wrote uh, Lincoln and the Bardo and a bunch of other books. He's great. And he teaches at Syracuse. And he, one of his students was Cheryl Strait, who wrote Wild. And which is a great book. And 
he, she is doing this, um, she's done for a long time, this, uh, pod, this article on now podcast called, um, Hey Sugar or Dear Sugar. And it's, um, sort of this advice, very funny, like advice column. It's great. And she's doing a special series because of, uh, coronavirus. She's doing a special series with, um, writers and asking them for perspectives. And so she interviews George Saunders, who's this really brilliant creative mind. And he made the most beautiful metaphor. And I just keep thinking about it so much. He said, you know, yes, this is misery. And this is misery for so many of us. But there is always misery somewhere in the world. There is always something of this caliber happening to someone. And instead of trying to find this static, consistent place where nothing happens, we need to all think of ourselves as living our lives on the back of a sleeping tiger. I loved that. And I think about that where my business is concerned. I think about that where my parenting style is concerned. You know, I'm, my, my own childhood was very colorful and unique, but I always craved stability and normalcy. And so I'm always trying to create those for my daughter. And when I heard that, I thought, oh yeah, no, we shouldn't be bringing kids up to expect to be protected and to expect nothing to ever change. We need to train them like the little tiger jockeys they are you know we've put them onto this world that will always change in really unexpected yeah. ways and and I think about it from a business perspective I think about how yeah I need to be we need to be ready to pivot all the time the world is changing at this really amplified pace you know we yeah. all need to be able to react and respond and and to hold on to something that isn't working anymore you know, I get it. I'm a nostalgic, romantic person myself, but it's not going to help us succeed in really practical ways to no. do that. And to guilt people into, you know, feeling badly about how they shop or where yeah. they shop or why they want to shop in a certain way doesn't work, you know, to say like, you know, to, that it's bad to shop on Amazon and how dare you or to bad, that it's bad to shop on Etsy for fabric and how dare you. But it's like, but yeah. that's easier and that's how I want to shop. And so, yeah, it just, it, to, to guilt people, like make them feel bad. It, it's so, it just, I really can't stand it when people do that. It's like, <laughs> but, but it's just one click. Like why, why wouldn't you do that? That's that's how people want to live. Like it just makes but, their lives uh, easier. Don't make them feel yeah. guilty. Adapt what you're doing so that it works, so that it works for their lives, like solve yeah. their problem. Yeah. You yeah, know, totally. It just, yeah, I just don't, I, I can't, you, you can't fight it. You have to join. No, um, no. So. There was a really fascinating interview with them, with someone from Amazon. I might be able to find it for you and create a link for you. It was so fascinating. It was about how overall it was about how scary it is to think about how powerful Amazon has become. And at one point it's scary. Right. And it's so impactful in so many ways. And, um, but one of the things that I found really interesting was that at some point the, the interviewer said, well, what I, what I worry about is that we're being told what to buy and we're being told what the best of something is. And the guy said, Oh no, 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 no. If there's one thing you don't have to be afraid of is that Amazon will never go anywhere near 
those algorithms, they are completely organic. That data is completely organic because they know that they could never compete. They could never try to compete with what exists as the collective human desire. Like what we are feeding it. We, we need to stop looking at Amazon like this, you know, evil, evil tower. And we need to start recognizing that we are giving it all of the information it needs (laughs) to make us, to give us what it is a very symbiotic, dangerous, yes. Yes. Yeah, but, it's the same way uh, that Google is the same way. It's yeah, yeah, artificially intelligent. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So as a retailer, instead of imagining this foe, instead of imagining this this villainous competitor, pay attention to what they're doing and do it yourself because it's actually a fairly simple formula. Um, you know, you're yes. making it really easy for people. That's what you're that's the goal. That's you're right. making them feel good take away the pain. So I want to, um, first, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't just recommend your book, How to Catch a Frog, which I read when it came out. And for anyone who hasn't read it, we're not going to go into talking about it here, but I just wanted to really highly recommend that people read it. Um, it's a memoir of your, your childhood and growing up and, you're a wonderful writer, and I just loved it and um, would Thank you. super highly recommend it to everybody to go pick it up and, and read it and find out more about Heather's life, and um, you will be changed from reading it. So go get it. <laughs> yeah, so sweet. Um, yes. And, you know, I feel like um, it, it, it sort of was born from your blog, and um, – I know that blogging has been an important fixture for you, and it sounds like something that you are hopeful to get back into. Yeah, you know, I love writing, and um, I'm actually, I have two books that I'm working on right now, but not, I'm not making very much progress on either one of them because right now my um, my life is really designed around my family and it's the work that I do in fabric design and book illustration is much more conducive to being present. Um, when I'm writing, especially How to Catch a Frog is a great example of this and, and the novel that I'm working on is a great example of this. Uh, I need to just be able to check out for long stretches and it's it's not easy for me to do that with, um, with, you know, dogs and cats and daughter and husband and, and still make them feel like they're getting their fair share of me. But I do feel like I feel this way with knitting. Like, I feel like there's going to be a time in my life where I get to just sit in a chair (laughs) and write, and I can wake up at five in the morning and then appear at the lunch table feeling as though I've already worked a full day and no one will mind. But right now my mornings are about, you know, getting my family ready for the day. And and I love that. I wouldn't miss it for the world. I love being a mom and I love, but what I do and what I am constantly driven by now and, and what I am really focused on is finding opportunities for creative expression just in my day and with my child and the way that I live. And that's what my blog was based around. And when I stopped blogging, it was because I was published. I, it led to publishing contracts. We can and how to catch a frog two examples. Um, and then I didn't go back to it because blogging had sort of been replaced by things like Instagram. 
but it's been really frustrating for me because it was kind of this perfect, it felt like this perfect vehicle for me. Um, I could share like this, you know, I could write, I could illustrate, I could show work, I could talk about what I wanted to talk about, I could share resources. And that was really not only was it really my favorite work ever, but it was also it was I could integrate it into my life in a way that felt like it wasn't competing with this other world that I was responsible for. And yet I finished my day. My friend Alexandra um, said this really beautifully. She said, you know, she had three tiny children at the time and had given up this like very, very impressive career to be a stay at home mom. And she said she's quilting. She was just starting. And she said, you know, I just I don't even care like what it looks like at the end of the day. I just, I need to be able to go to bed at night feeling a sense of accomplishment, which is what making things by hand was giving her at that moment in her life, you know? And, and I remembered that feeling about blogging. I remember that feeling of like connecting, you know, and sort of connecting the dots and, and celebrating it and being a resource. And so even though there is a part of me that wants to disappear into my old crumbly house in the Catskills and turn into someone who like lived this like Hemingway existence where I just get up and light the fire and write until lunch and then drink a half a bottle of wine and go swimming. Like that would be awesome. That's like absolutely what I want my retirement. (laughs) Or maybe once my daughter's in high school and has no interest in seeing me or hanging out with me, that's what my life will become. But right now what I'm trying to build in my business um, and Melanie Fallick, who's a dear friend and um, such a teacher of mine and a mentor, uh, I've asked her to partner with me in this effort. And I've also I've corralled the incredible Brooke Hallowell Reynolds of Inchmark and Martha Stewart and Pearl Soho of fame to help me to um, restructure, sort of reformat my business, my website into something that acts as a vehicle for that kind of work, that resources for creative living platform, because it, to me, it feels like exactly what the world needs and exactly what I want to be doing. And, and that's super exciting. And, you know, Brooke lives it every day. She's got four kids and I always say that. And then I always think, wait, does she have five kids? No, (laughs) four kids. (laughs) She's we're good friends, but she's been in LA for so long that we only really see each other online. Um, Brooke is, is incredibly talented, um, very pragmatic, but she lives it. You know, she's a mom, but she also has this incredible creative career. And um, and then Melanie is just you know one of the most brilliant and authentic people I've ever known. And and I, as anyone who works as an as an entrepreneur, anyone who works largely on their own, um, knows. Like someone who will tell you exactly what they think of your work and celebrate you, but also push you and teach you and give you, you know, new things to think about. And that's Melanie in my, that's what Melanie's been in my life. She's been this really important person. She's always capable of getting better work out of me than what I think I'm able to do. And then of course... Right. So I was just going to say, so this is going to be a new publishing project of some kind and sort of of details to come soon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, Brooke and I are both, and Melanie too, are obsessed with like the physical paper form. But 
the reality is, is that there are a lot of ways, a lot of different ways to reach people right now and a lot of different ways to share things and images. And, and then of course the world has just gone through a very tumultuous change and, I feel and I know they feel that there's never been a better time to, you know, focus on being at home and being with your family and doing things together and making things together and learning, learning skills. And those things are all super, super important. But what the how exactly to deliver that, I think that changes right now every day, you know. So, right. So we will wait and see, but it's something (laughs) is coming um, and we'll just kind of leave it there. Thank you, Abby. I will say that um, it, there will be a there will be a very unified relationship between the new fabrics that I'm doing and okay. this project. I will say that because I think it might be obvious, but I think that it's kind of part of a new story in that sense, and I think it will also help it to exist as a separate entity from what exists as this, you know, amazing fabric world that we all know and love and don't always fully understand. (laughs) Right. So there'll be, it'll be a pairing and, um, it'll be interesting to see how that looks and, um, something exciting for people to look forward to. So that's great. And before we go on too, too long, I want to make sure we get, we'll do it rapid fire style. Um, but I want to make sure we get to your, list of recommendations, Heather. So we'll do those now. Um, So um, do you have a few things that you would like to recommend to listeners out there? I absolutely do. One of them was actually the George Saunders interview, but I'm going to, I'm going to go a little further and say that I'm personally deriving a tremendous amount of inspiration and peace from the, the um, Dear Sugar podcast um, from, uh, from Cheryl Strayed, who's the author of Wild. It's it's wonderful. It's a really nice respite from everything that's happening. Okay. Um, and then I'm also I you know I spent a few days in the hospital recently with coronavirus and and I was in a little bit of a blur zone where I was like sleeping for long stretches and then not at all. And um, and uh, one of the things that I was doing was I was binge watching, which I never have time to binge anything. So this was actually super exciting. Um. I was binging a masterpiece theater program. There are four seasons of it. So there's lots and lots of it. It's on Amazon. It's called the Durrells of Corfu. And it's based on the um, autobiography of one of the, the Durrell family members. The Durrells is the last name and Corfu is this beautiful little Greek isle. And it's about a widow who takes her uh, children of varying ages and personalities and leaves 1930s England and just takes them and relocates them to this big crumbly old house in Greece. And they have no money and no connections and they just have to build a new life and, and adapt to this really new world and, and do it in a way that, that is, you know, good for each of them. And it's so lovely and it's so timely and it's also very yeah. funny and very shot and I highly highly recommend it and then the last item I I think a lot of people that listen to your podcast are probably aware of this so maybe this is more of a reminder than it is anything groundbreaking but there is a wonderful wonderful craftsperson named Jody Levine who was an editor at Martha Stewart and then Martha Stewart Kids and Weddings and Baby and most people have run across her work because she's very well known but I want to remind you that her premise the premise of her brand is 
crafts that you can make with kids from things that you have in your house or can get at the supermarket, which given our current situation is, I think, so great to have as a resource. And the name of her company is Super Make It. So it's like supermarket, but Super Make It instead. And she's got a couple of great books out there that I think a few of them are available as Kindle. Uh, and it's great. And if you're trying to yeah. fill time in a fun way with kids right now, I just can't recommend it enough. Did she work on, uh, there was a brief period where Martha Stewart had magazines for kids. It was Martha Stewart Kids. I wonder whether she... Yeah, she was there. She was a part of that. I don't know. I remember at one point she was definitely at the top of the masthead for weddings and may have also been for kids, but she was a big part of that movement there. Yeah. I used to collect those. I had, I think I had Uh, almost all of them. They were great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. She's great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Great recommendations. I will link to those in the show notes and Heather, this has been really good. And, um, Really like, uh, I don't know, informative and interesting, lots of meaty things to think about while we are all stuck at home. And so lots of, you know, lots of good stuff. So thank you very much for, for taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. I know I've been very chatty, but you know, that's another thing about this isolation. You start having a conversation with somebody and you realize you have a lot to say. (laughs) It's like we're all starved for conversation. So this is perfect. Oh, I think so. Yeah, it's really, it's perfect. It was a treat to talk to you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It was, I loved it. It was great being on. Thank you so much for having me, Abby. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Stockable. Stockable is a curated wholesale marketplace for handcrafted goods built by makers like you, not by Silicon Valley. They've got convenient features like risk-free net 60 buyer terms without the hefty commissions and orders are always paid within three days so you don't have to worry about cash flow. Learn more at stockable.com slash craft industry alliance. Apply to sell today and get your first month for free. Thank you so much, Stockable. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.